Well, greetings, everyone. I hope you've had an inspiring Feast of Tabernacles wherever in the world you may be keeping God's festivals. Today, we've come down to the very final last day of the feast. It's called the last great day. It's that one day at the very end that's tacked onto the end of the whole plan that God has given to us. But why do we have a last great day? What does it mean? Why this day? Well, today I hope to answer that for you and inspire you to look forward to what God has planned, not just for us in his church in this end time, but for all humanity that's ever lived on the face of this earth. Some years back, I was visiting a group of people in India. Uh, There were about 3,000 people who their leadership thought that they would like to be a part of the Living Church of God. And when I visited them, we got together with their ministry. There were about 30 ministers in the room. And I asked them two basic questions. I said, first of all, I want you to list the Ten Commandments for me. Well, I think there was one man that managed to get four of the Ten Commandments. The others got one or two. But they really did not have any understanding about God's way of life or his law. Then I asked them also, what do you mean by the kingdom of God? Or what is our future? Why were you born? What is God doing with us? What is his plan? Well, we got a variety of answers. People or those ministers there really didn't have a clue about what life was like. And yet they were Sabbath keepers. And yet they did not understand what the whole purpose of life was all about. Well, this day actually has a lot to do with the purpose as to why God created human beings on this earth and made us in his image. Before we get to have a look at some of this, I want to go back over some basic scriptures with you about this last day. Over here in Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 23, we find the instruction that God gave concerning keeping this day. A lot of People down through time have read these verses and these scriptures here, but really didn't comprehend what it was all about. But we find here in Leviticus 23 and down in verse 36, he's already in this chapter covered the previous holy days from Passover, the days of unleavened bread, down to Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles that we've just observed. And now we come to this all-important last day. And so it says here in verse 36 of Leviticus 23, seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. And then on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is is a solemn assembly and you shall do no servile work therein. So here was a day that was to be set aside for a very important purpose. Even the people in ancient Israel, as they observed this time, not that they always did it, but even when they did, they didn't fully comprehend what this day was all about. If we go over here to, uh, in fact, in the same chapter, in verse 39, he says also, in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And that's the day that we're observing right now. God has us do this 
because he wants us to have in mind a part of his plan that will inspire us to look forward to the future and never turn away from his way of life. Over here in Nehemiah chapter 8, after the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we find the, uh, the uh, people ha- were returning uh, from their captivity. They had realized that the reason God had put them there was because, or at least their leadership realized the reason God had put them into captivity was their waywardness, their rejection of God's way of life. And so here in chapter 8, and dropping down to the end of this verse, they already kept the Feast of Tabernacles. But in verse 18, we find it recorded here for us, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 18. Also day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read in the book of the law, and they kept the feast seven days, and then on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. So much later on, after God had inspired Moses to record and, and, and teach the people about this all-important eighth day, we find nearly, what, a thousand years later, under Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, the people were beginning to think about returning back to God. Of course, it didn't last too long, and they also did not fully comprehend what this day was all about. Well, it wasn't until the New Testament times that we pick up this story again. Undoubtedly, some of the scriptures in John chapter 7 have already been read uh, during the feast, but I want to take you back there right now to John chapter 7. This is towards the end of Christ's ministry, about six months before he was to be delivered up to death and die for us, die on our behalf, he is keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. He set an example for us. And as we come down in this chapter, we don't take the time to read the entire chapter here, but you do start in verse 1, and you find that Christ goes up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. And as we come down towards the end of the chapter in verse 37, there's a remarkable, couple of remarkable verses here that deal with this day. And I want to read them to you. Uh, It would be good for us to go through and have a look at what this day represents and what it meant to Christ and some of the words that he has given to us. It says in John chapter 7 and verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And then he goes on to say, He that believes on me, As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So here we find it's called the last day, the great day of the feast. And this did happen on this very day we're celebrating celebrating now. This this account that we just read about actually happened last evening at the beginning of the last day after sundown while it was getting dark and while it was dark Christ is delivering this sermon to the people there. Of course it caused a lot of division between various ones who were listening in but there was a purpose 
why Christ says this. And we're going to have a closer look at some of this in a minute. The last day is not mentioned all that much in the New Testament. Probably if someone said to you, show me in the Bible where it mentions the last day or the last great day, perhaps you would turn to John 7. Um, You would probably go over to Revelation chapter 20 and read some of the scriptures there, which we'll have a look at in a moment. But when we think about the New Testament, we would have to say, well, it doesn't appear to be much that is discussed and give any meaning to what this day really means. And yet, in the New Testament, as we see in a minute, you'll find that Christ had a lot to say about this day and how we can really understand how God is going to use this in his purpose of allowing all humanity ultimately to be born into his kingdom, to be a part of his divine family, and to be given eternal life for Jesus Christ and the rest of those who will be in the first resurrection. In fact, let's first of all have a look at Revelation chapter 21. Here is a interesting, and I want to bring this out at this point, because this has actually happens after the last great day and perhaps is, is included in it in one sense at the very, very end. We find in Revelation 21, one of the greatest desires that God himself has. If anyone was to ask you what is God's greatest desire, what would we say? Well, I suppose there's many different facets to it. But here is, here is one that is so very important. In Revelation chapter 21, we find John is seeing in vision the new heaven and the new earth. And then he says in verse 2, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And notice verse 3. He says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know, from the very beginning, God wanted to dwell with his creation. You can go back to Genesis and you find God created Adam and Eve, put them in the Garden of Eden, and he was there with them. But they didn't, and humanity, we'll talk about it in that respect, they rejected God. God said, if you're not going to obey me, then you cannot live in my garden, so to speak. You cannot dwell with me. That's where Adam and Eve were cast out into the land of Eden and weren't allowed to actually live in the garden. God has wanted to live with his creation. Turn with me quickly to Exodus chapter 25. We want to show you another verse here because this does ultimately have a lot to do with God's plan and purpose for humanity and for us to be a part of the the uh, divine family of God. In Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25, and uh, just reading a couple of verses here. In fact, let's drop down to verse 1 and 2, talk about how God wanted them to begin to bring an offering to him of all different metals and fabrics so that they could begin to build the tabernacle in in the wilderness. But in verse 8 he says, And let them make with the offerings that they gave, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanted to dwell among his people. And in fact, when we go over to Matthew chapter 1, 
I'm sure you all remember the statement that is made here regarding Christ's birth and what his name was to be. We find in Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 21 where it is recorded for us, and he and she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, meaning Savior, we find in verse 23, and behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God is wanting to be with his creation. He's wanting to be with us. Unfortunately, human beings down through time have said, God, get out of our life. We don't want you to be with us. And yet, that's one of God's greatest desires to be with his creation. Anyway, over in Matthew 21, where we just read earlier, the new Jerusalem is coming. God is going to be with us. They will, we will be his people. He will be our God. And yet, before that great day can happen, before God himself comes, something else very important also must take place. And that's what this day is all about. I want to take you back to John chapter 7. If you turn with me in your, your Bibles to John chapter 7, we come down to uh, this chapter. And I only turn here. I won't take the time to read all of this. We find a little bit further down the uh, arguments that's taking place. Nicodemus uh, is in, in, involved in this. Of course, he was the one earlier on that John records who came to Jesus by night and, and Christ explains to him what it means to be born again, to be born spiritually into the kingdom of God, to become a spirit being as one of God's very own children. And this is all happening on the, at least this uh, section here in John 7, is happening on the evening of the eighth day, the evening of the last great day. And so after this discussion takes place and these arguments uh, uh, proceed between the Pharisees and the uh, people and, the, and, and Christ, everybody leaves. It's getting late. And they all leave and they go back home. And Christ, it is recorded here in John chapter 8 and verse 1, goes to um, uh, Bethany, uh, the Mount of Olives, and um, probably goes and stays with uh, Lazarus and, and the family. And I want to read this bit to you because this is a, an interesting section here because this actually takes place in the early morning of this very day, the morning of the last great day. An interesting development takes place. And you've all read this at one time or another. But let's have a look and have a look at what actually transpired. Because here, and as we go through these verses, and I'm going to go through chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, which all happened and took place on the last great day. And in these verses, we're going to see the parallels of what happened on that day and what Christ was teaching us that's going to happen on the very last great day, the fulfillment in God's plan of this very day we're keeping now. So here in chapter 8 and verse 1, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery, 
And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Well, you know, these Pharisees were really pretty unjust in one sense because when you go back and you read the law that God says regarding adultery, he says both the man and the woman were to be put to death. Uh, here we find that they're only bringing the, the woman uh, to and present before Christ. But there's, there's an important aspect to this. And I think you know the story. He is, here it says in verse 6, And so they said, tempting him, that they might have something to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground as though he did not hear them. So when he continued asking him, he lifted himself up and he said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. We're very familiar with that statement. Many people use that. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, this is about to tell us something very important about the last great day. These Pharisees were guilty. We don't exactly know what Christ wrote on the ground, but whatever it was, they were convicted to the point that they did not want to stay there, and they left. And so we, re read, we read here in verse 10, And so when Jesus lifted up, him, up himself, he saw none but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no man condemned you? Now, when we read this, this is very fascinating because God says you are not to receive an, accusa an accusation against anybody except in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Uh, we, we can read that. Maybe we should turn there very quickly to Deuteronomy 19 because, you know, God lives by his own word. He wrote this and he upholds it even with his own judgments and here in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and in verse 15, uh, we read the uh, important scriptures here that deal with this subject. And in verse 15, he says, One witness shall not rise up against the man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sins. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. And so Christ is presented with this woman who is guilty. He says to her, where are the witnesses? Well, she says there are none. And, of course, you can read the same scripture. God has repeated himself in the Bible here, back in, John, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and down in verse 6. He says the same thing, if you want to turn there quickly. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. But in this woman's case, she was guilty, but no witnesses. And so what does Christ say to her? She said, to, to, she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, this is verse 11 of John chapter 8 now. No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now Christ knew she was guilty, but he says, there are no witnesses. And so I cannot condemn you. Go and sin no more. He knew there was sin, but he's giving her an instruction 
not to sin again and not to repeat that same um, uh, act of, of, of transgressing God's commandment, the seventh commandment. Now let's go over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and read what God says about this particular day. Revelation 20 and beginning here in, um, in verse 10. Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now remember, the thousand years have now expired. Satan is loosed for a little season at the end. He causes the world to be deceived once again. They come up to attack Jerusalem and attack Christ. But of course, you know, fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. And it's immediately after this, in verse 10, that we find that the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were previously cast a thousand years earlier and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then it goes on to say, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no and found no uh, place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, what we have here is all humanity that has ever lived. The dead are now standing, small and great. doesn't matter who they are, what station in life they have, or what station in life they didn't have. God, in his mercy, is going to give everybody the opportunity to know him. But notice what happened. Who is the accuser of the brethren? You can read that back in Revelation chapter 12. He states there very categorically, and maybe I'll just quickly turn to it and, and read it here in um, Revelation and the uh, 12th chapter. It says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels with him and so forth. And then in verse 10, we find... And I heard a loud voice, John is saying here in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and, uh, uh, and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan has been the accuser to God of all humanity down through time. But what happens in Revelation chapter 20 when we find Satan is taken off the scene and all, all humanity that comes up at that resurrection after the th a thousand years at the beginning of perhaps a hundred year period of time. I don't know if we exactly know how long that last great day lasts for, but where is the accuser? Mankind coming up out of that resurrection. Mankind who spiritually has committed adultery with the devil down through time, spiritually committed fornication, has rebelled against God's way of life. They have had another God. They have not been loyal to the God that created them. Now they come up in a, in a resurrection that God gives them their life back. The, the, those, the dead, small and great, stand before God. But where is the accuser? He's been taken off the scene. Just like in... John chapter 8, the woman who had sinned, committed adultery, physical adultery, 
And Christ says, I don't condemn you because there's no accuser. And we find this wonderful parallel that's taking place here where humanity now is able to stand before their creator and God is not going to condemn them. Many people have looked at these scriptures, called it the great white throne judgment time and these people are all guilty and so they're all going to go into the lake of fire. Not so. The accuser is gone. And as it says in Revelation 20, the books are opened. And then another book is opened, which is the book of life. And it says the dead are going to be judged out of those things that are written in the books. I just want to digress a second here to talk a little bit about judgment. You know, oftentimes people think about judgment as the, the sentencing. They're, they're condemned. But when we look in the Bible, and this is why this day is so wonderful, when we look in the Bible and see what God's definition of judgment is, then we find we have a different perspective of what it means to talk about being a judge. Come back here with me to um, Exodus chapter 18. This is where God is bringing the Israelites out of captivity, out of Egypt. He's freeing them, and now he's giving them a, a system of government. They've been in captivity for perhaps 80, 100 years. They had lost track of what, who God was, what his laws were, how he wanted them to live. And so in Exodus chapter 18, we find here Moses is actually trying to help the people. He's there with them from sunup to sundown. The lines are getting longer. People are coming to him and they're wanting help. And of course, his father-in-law Jethro is there to give a little bit of advice. And so he says to um, uh, Moses... Uh, in verse 14 of Exodus 18, when Moses' father-in-law saw that all that he did to the people, he said, what is this thing that you do to the people? Why sit yourself alone and all the people stand by you from morning to evening? And it's interesting to read the next few verses here as to what Moses was doing. And, and have a look at it here in verse 15. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, you know, that's why they were coming, not, not for Moses to tell them how bad they were or how rotten they were and how sinful they might have been. They, they were coming to him, Moses, what would God want us to do? Moses, how does God want us to handle this problem? What's God's mind on this? It says, and when they have a matter, verse 16, they come to me and I judge between one and another and to make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. Notice, Moses' responsibility as a judge. It was to teach people God's statutes, his laws, his way of life. And as we come down a little bit further in this chapter, uh, down in verse 19, Jethro says to his father-in-law Moses, he says, now, or his son-in-law, hearken now to my voice and I will give you counsel and God shall be with you. Be you for the people toward God that you may bring the causes unto God and you shall teach them. Notice this is the responsibility of a judge. You shall teach them ordinances and laws and show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. The responsibility of a judge was to show people God's way of life, to show them how to live according to God's laws and his statutes. It was to teach them how to walk and how to work. God had a job for his people. He had a responsibility for them to fulfill. And to do that, he needed a system of judges under Moses. 
to teach them how to do this, how to live the right and decent way of life according to God's laws and the work that they have to do. You read that in verse 21. Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, to be rulers of hundreds, to be rulers of fifty and tens, and let them judge the people at all seasons. You know, continually teach. Don't give up on it. It's a matter of day by day, day in and day out. This was the responsibility of a judge. The very great matters they shall bring to you, uh, the, 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 uh, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall judge, and so shall it be easier for yourself, and they shall bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing, and God commands you so, then you shall be able to endure it. So basically that is what, uh, simply is what judgment is all about. And you know, brethren, we've heard the scripture, and I'm, I'm going to turn to it here in First uh, Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. We have been called out of modern-day Egypt, modern-day Babylon. And what is the judgment that is on us? Let's go over here to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because here God shows us that we as God's people, spiritual Israel in that sense, also have judgment on us. But what is that judgment? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, where Peter here says, For the time is come, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And of course, if it begin with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So he's talking about God's gospel needs to be obeyed. We need to learn how to live according to God's standards and his uh, uh, statutes and judgments and ordinances and laws. And so this is why we come into God's church. I hope we don't come into God's church thinking we already know everything. You know, we're here to learn. We're here to learn about God's way of life. And we can be thankful that the accuser of the brethren, even in our life in one sense, has been uh, uh, put aside through the blood of Christ. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 12, where we read earlier on. And we have to understand, when we come out of ignorance, when we come out of darkness, when we come out of deception, even into God's church, and I've talked to individuals that are very negative about being in the church and thinking, oh, they're not going to make it and they're very uh, despondent in some respects. You know, there's a very encouraging scripture over here in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 that I want to read to you because this is what is going to happen on the last great day. Many who are going to come out of their graves, the horrible things that have happened in their lives, maybe the horrible things that they have done in their lives, they're going to have to understand something that hopefully we can comprehend today and think about the incredible blessing it is to know the truth. This is in First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. You know, God has not called us into his church to make it hard for us. He's not called us into the truth so that he is wanting to see us miss out or make it so hard that we can't do it. Notice here in First Thessalonians 5 and verse, um, verse 9, and Paul is wanting to encourage the people here, and he says, For God has not appointed us to wrath. God has not called us to destroy us. He's called us into the body of Christ, into the church of God, to save us, to give us eternal life. God has not appointed us 
to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to think about it in those terms. That is a wonderful blessing that God has given to us. And as, as he says in Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you is going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because where is our accuser? Well, we've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Well, just like that woman in John chapter 8, who, when Christ says, there are no, there's no one to accuse you, then he says, neither do I. And that's what it's going to be like for all those people. It doesn't matter what they've done in life, how evil they may have been, what sins they might have perpetrated, what crimes they committed, whatever their situation, God is going to say, right, now this is a new beginning for you. The accuser is no longer on the scene. Now we can begin to teach you from the books that are open about a way of life that you did not understand about before. And as we continue to read through John chapter 8, the interesting statements that are made following that account that we uh, read previously about the um, lady that was being condemned there, starting in John chapter 8 and verse 12. I I won't go through all of this here. It's a lengthy bit, but you take the time to have a look at it and, and see what Christ is talking about. He starts out and the first verse, well, the 12th verse in this chapter, but the first in this section, he says, Then spoke Jesus again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Think about these people that come up on the last great day. They've been in darkness. Satan has deceived them. Their minds have not been open to the truth. They have not been able to understand what is written in this book. And you know, that you didn't understand this until God opened your mind. It wasn't until God put a little bit of light from his spirit into your brain, into your mind, that you began to comprehend what this, uh, these words are all about, what the Bible is all about, that this word is the word, book is the, the, the book of truth, that Christ is truth, his word is truth. And as you go through these verses, the rest of chapter 8, and sometime go through and just record or just circle or mark in your Bible, Everywhere he talks about the truth, or he talks about light being the truth, and how he he is the true record, and that his record is true. And uh, it uh, is absolutely fascinating to see this, because what we're dealing with here in this rest of John chapter 8 is showing how Satan has deceived the world, how he did keep the world in darkness, how Satan was the god of this world, how he was a murderer from the beginning, and that he, when he speaks, he, he does not speak the truth because there is no truth in him. There is no light in him. And Christ says, when he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. This world has learned everything that is op- opposite to the way of life that God wants us to live. And that's why in Revelation 20, where we read about the last great day, he says, the books are opened. Something happens now that enables the human beings that come up in that resurrection for the first time to really understand the mind of God from the words that you are reading even at this very time. Let's go over to um, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, sorry, and, and, and chapter four, just to 
illustrate this very quickly. Second Corinthians chapter four, talking about Satan and this world's way of life and that the fact that he is the God of this world. Second Corinthians chapter four. And we read down here, beginning in in verse four. Second Corinthians four and verse four, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. So Satan has kept the world blinded all this time. We were blinded. We did not understand the truth. No, we were just like all those people, individuals in the rest of this world that do not understand God's word. They do not understand his plan. It's because... God has not revealed that to him. He has allowed Satan to deceive them and keep them in darkness. But notice in verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going back and reminding them of the creation right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. This world was Tohu and Bohu, chaos and confusion. It was darkness. Satan had rebelled and tried to destroy the, the earth. And God had to recreate this world or this earth in six days. And the very first thing that happened was, he said, let there be light. You know, when Satan has deceived us and kept us in darkness, and yet it was God's spirit that was able to penetrate our mind and begin to give us a little bit of that truth. And as we responded to that, He gave us more and more, and he will do that uh, for us. And so what happens as we move on in John chapter 8? We go, sorry, we move to John chapter chapter 9. We see that Christ had been speaking to uh, the the Pharisees back here in John 8 about the deception of, of Satan and the darkness in this world and the fact they weren't able to see the light or the truth and that he is the light of the world. We, can't, we come to chapter 9. And what is the miracle that happened? Now remember, this is all taking place on the last great day, on the daylight part, after Christ had given that sermon the evening before. We find that these chapters are dealing with what happens on this very day. And so in chapter 9 of John, and in verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this man was born blind. Now, you think about this world spiritually it's born blind we don't know who God is you didn't know who God was until he revealed himself to you and allowed you the privilege to have a little bit of his Holy Spirit to begin with to understand some of the truth these individuals are going to come up in the in the resurrection all humanity that has ever lived and what's going to happen just like the books of the Bible were open to you, so too God is going to remove the blindness from 
all humanity in this last great day. The books are going to be opened. They're going to have the opportunity through God's Spirit to be able to understand what is written in these words here. You remember what it said over in Revelation chapter 20? Revelation chapter 20 and down in verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The only way dead people can stand is that God gives them their life back. They stood before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Well, before we go on, let's go back here to Isaiah chapter 29. The book of Isaiah and chapter 29. Now, I know many of these scriptures here refer to the millennium. It's speaking about Israel and what is going to happen to them at the beginning of the thousand years. But it's also prophetic of what's going to happen with the rest of humanity after the thousand years. And it's interesting to read in chapter 29 the uh, uh, parallels here and the wording that is used. Isaiah chapter 29 and beginning here in verse 11. It says, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. You know, when God's word is sealed, he says here, the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. You cannot understand what's in it. Which men deliver to one that is learned and say, read this, I ask you. And he shall say, I cannot read it, it is sealed. And so the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, and I pray you. And he says, I'm not learned, I can't understand this either. So the wise, the unwise, they weren't able to read what is written in God's word. It says in verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men. We want to worship God according to how we feel and what we think or what someone else might tell us rather than look to his word. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. And then dropping down to verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. We'll come to that section there in a minute. For shall the work say of him that made it he made me not or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it he had no understanding you know how can the pottery the whatever the potter makes turn around and say I made myself well this is what human beings are doing today you know we think evolution just made us out of out of nothing the world came to existence from nothing and sadly this is the attitude that's being displayed here we are the clay we're the, we're the product of God's hands, but we're telling God, you know, we, you didn't make us. And yet, as we drop down here to verse 18, and it says, In that day shall the deaf hear, and the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. That's what's going to happen on this last great day. When all humanity comes back to life again, the books are opened. And what does it say there? The deaf are going to hear the words, the eyes of the blind shall see. And what were we just reading in John chapter 9? Let's go back there, John chapter 9, 
and read that again or refer to this section again. We just read about this blind man who was blind from birth, just like the world was blind from birth. This man is miraculously able to see. As it says in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, Christ says, I am the light of the world. Christ is the one that gives light. He's the one that gave you and I light. He's the one that's going to open the, uh, the, 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 the eyes of the blind so that they can understand in the last great day. He's the one that's going to uh, open their ears so that they can hear the truth preached. Well, as we come down in John chapter 9, Christ tells the man, as he, he says, you know, he, he takes some clay, he, he spits on it, because that wouldn't be kosher today, but he does, and he wa- tells the man to put it on his eyes and then go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And we find in verse 13, and so they brought to the Pharisees him that previously was blind, because now he is healed. And it was the Sabbath day. Notice it, it's still the Sabbath. We're on the, 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 the it's a high day. It's the last great day. And it's interesting, back in 31 AD, if the calendar I consulted is accurate, it says that that last great day, 31 AD, I'm sorry, 30 AD, was actually not only a a high day Sabbath, it was also the weekly Sabbath. Um, And so he says here, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And it's going to be on this last great day that the blindness of the whole world is going to be taken away. They're going to be given their sight. They're going to have it restored so that they can truly understand who their God is, who their creator is. And then we find a little bit further down that as a result of this, there were some that still rejected the fact that Christ had done this miracle and accused him, of course, of breaking the Sabbath. Very hard to break some of those habits there. So this blind man, blind from birth, just as the world is blind from birth, is going to have its sight restored. In um, Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, Acts 17 and verse 29, God tells us through the Apostle Paul here, Paul is uh, uh, over um, in in Athens and um, he's explaining a little bit about... um, what is uh, taking place. Uh, he explains to them about the, the unknown God. I'm sure you've all read this section here, but in verse 29 of Acts 17, it is recorded here, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone or graven image uh, and, and, and man's devices. And the times of this ignorance... God winked at. You know, human beings have been ignorant of God's way of life. You know, they asked Christ, or they asked, yeah, they asked Christ, who sinned? Did this man sin, or did his parents sin? And Christ explains to them, no, it wasn't this man, and it wasn't his parents. Remember, he was born blind. The world is like that. They are born into ignorance about God. Because Satan, the god of this world, has deceived them. He is the god of darkness. They've been ignorant. We were ignorant of who the true God is. And yet here Paul, the Apostle Paul, is saying in verse 30, And the times of this ignorance God 
winked at. Now, it was still sin. We understand that. But it's like he said to the woman, who is condemning you? And she says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I. There is a penalty that has to be paid for that sin, though. And it's interesting that over in uh, Leviticus chapter 4, God spends an entire chapter talking about sins of ignorance, sins of when we commit it, commit, break his law. We're not doing maliciously or willfully. He talks about the sins of ignorance of the people, of the rulers, of the even the, uh, uh, the, the nation itself, and how God is going to forgive that. And that's what God certainly wants to do. And we know that in ignorance, yes, we pay the penalty of that, but God does wink at it, wink at it or overlook it. But, of course, as he says to the woman, go and sin no more. And, of course, this is what we find happening on this last great day. In John chapter 9 and verse 25, just drop back there once again and we read a few more scriptures concerning this important day. He says, and he answered and he said, regarding this man who um, had been healed, he said, uh, whether he be a sinner or not, says the man, talking about Christ, I don't know. One thing I know, that where, where I, was, I was blind, now I see. And that's going to be the motto of those people that come up on this day at the, after the thousand years, the last great day. They're going to know that they were blind, but the one thing they're going to be able to really talk about and be excited about is that, yes, they were blind, but now they can see. Down in verse 34 and through to verse 39. And they answered and they said to him, You were altogether born in sin, and do you teach us? And so they cast him out. Here's this, the, the attitude of these people. They weren't happy that he could now have his sight restored. They rejected him. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What a wonderful thing to see happen here, because that is what is going to happen in the very last great day. People are going to be able to see they're going to know that their eyes have been opened and they're going to be able to thank God that he has healed them. They're going to be able to say, just like this man says, I believe, and they will also worship the true God. And so Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. There are those, unfortunately, the Bible seems to indicate are just going to reject God out of hand. But for those that are blinded by the God of this world, as he says there, talking about Christ, talking about himself, I am come into the world that they which see not might see. God's whole purpose is to ultimately have humanity come to understand who the true God is. And now, as we read down here, we come to chapter 10. And this is continuing to take place from verse 1 down to verse 20, 21. All this is happening on the last great day. This, in Christ's time, 
on this last great day. This was a very full day for Christ. But he's showing here the events that are being, uh, what is being portrayed here are the events that are going to take place after the thousand years. And he shows here in chapter 10, I won't read the, all of it here, just a few verses. He says in verse 10, well, he begins and he says, you know, he's, he is the, uh, the, the, um, the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, his sheep follow him and so forth. In verse 10, it says, the thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he says, I am come that they might, ha- might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Well, we, we can talk about what that actually means, but when you extend it out to the last great day on which this event took place, Christ is saying that, yes, there is one fold. We can think about that as the church of God now, and those people that God has been using and deal, in calling and dealing with down through time. Who are the other sheep of another fold? Well, perhaps they are, as we read it here, the ones that have never understood. Because God wants all humanity to be a part of that fold. Christ is, wants to be the shepherd of all his creation. And so here we find where Christ himself says, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Think about it. At the end of the thousand years, when we have the last great day, and the books are open, the book of life is also open, and these people have their names written in that book, and eventually they change from physical flesh and blood into immortality and become a part of the very family of God. How many folds are there going to be? We're going to be all part of that one family. We're going to have one shepherd. Christ, who is the good shepherd, is going to be king of kings and lord of lords, yes, during the millennium, but right throughout all eternity. And we read over in 1 Corinthians 15, when all this is accomplished, the last enemy to be destroyed is death through the resurrection, through the change that will take place, then he hands everything over to his father. And then we have the glorious new Jerusalem coming down to this earth. Here in verse 19 of John chapter 10, It says, And there was a division, therefore, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He is a devil and is mad. Why do you hear him? Others said, These are not the words of him that has a devil. Can the devil open the eyes of the blind? Well, obviously, the answer is, of course not. Only Christ can do that because Christ is the light of the world. Satan certainly is that. Satan is darkness. Christ is light. Well, as we celebrate this time, as we read these scriptures here, a woman taken in adultery, there are no accusers. That's like the world taken in spiritual adultery, worshipping the devil, committing fornication or adultery with the, the world system and the, get the devil's governments and so forth. Satan is taken out of the way. There are no accusers. Humanity now has the opportunity to start afresh. Christ is giving them the opportunity to have his truth revealed to them, having the blindness removed from their eyes and giving them the opportunity to have their names written in the book of life 
as they follow the good shepherd, as they follow Jesus Christ into his kingdom. I want to give you some just some afterthoughts about this day as we think about God's plan, as we come to the end of this time and the incredible future that is up ahead, not just for us, but for all of God's creation. You think, how is all this going to be accomplished? How are people going to come to repentance? You know, there was a... Um, the incredible event that took place in Noah's day. I know you all know about it. It's called the flood. And Noah, for all those many years, is building this ark. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God told Noah, you go out and tell those people because of their iniquity what's going to happen to them. I'm going to destroy the world by a flood. You know, I often ask the question, which I'll ask right now, how many people actually believed Noah when he got up there and began to preach to them? We know the whole world was destroyed. The only people that got on the ark were Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And so how many people believed Noah with all those years of preaching? Well, on the surface, when you look at it, you think, no one. Maybe his son, one or two of his sons might have believed his daughters-in-law, his wife. At least there were eight of them on that, on that ark. But the rest of humanity perished. Well, I guarantee, brethren, even though no one believed him while he preached those words, while those floodwaters were rising up the side of the ark and the ark started floating and those waters started getting higher and higher and those people were treading water to try and stay alive and probably there were scratch marks from their fingernails on the side of the ark trying to get in they're probably saying Noah we believe you now you told us the truth you said this was going to happen we are now believers but the flood took them all away they all died so you can you imagine what's going to happen when these people come up in the resurrection at the end of the thousand years at the beginning of this great white throne judgment and they they stand on their feet the small and the great you know, one of the first things that probably come to their mind is, where's Noah? He told us that this was going to happen, and we didn't believe him. And yet as we were sinking and all that murky, muddy water was going into our lungs, we, we were probably saying, or they were probably saying, we should have listened to this man. Well, now Noah is glorified. He's a spirit being. He's part of the God family. And those people that he preached to and that you knew about this crazy man building an ark, you can be sure one of the things they're going to do is say, Noah, tell us about the God that you worshipped. Tell us about the God who told you these things and that warned us of what was going to happen to us. They'll be ready to listen. You see, God has humbled them through that flood. They died, but they knew before they died that there was a witness, and they had had that warning which they rejected. Well, it's going to probably be the same for most people down through time. People have, as Christ said, they killed all the prophets from the very beginning. They didn't want to listen to the message that was given. And it's like our work today, brethren. It's interesting that Christ said about the end time. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And so what we find is that 
humanity, even today, do they want to listen to our message? Do they want to tell, listen to the fact that we are telling them that the world is going the wrong way? It is rebelling against God. It is in a great revolt against their creator. They don't want to hear that. They're going to reject our message, even though we tell them the people of Israel are going to go into a tribulation, even though the world is going to experience the atrocities and the horrendous time of the day of the Lord so that they can be corrected for their rebellion against God. No, when these people also in our day and age come up in that resurrection at the end of the millennium, they're going to say, where are the people? Where is Mr. Herbert Armstrong that I heard on the radio? Where is Dr. Meredith and the others that were helping him that we saw on television that told us about this? We're ready to listen now. It's going to be a wonderful time, brethren. They're going to be ready to receive the word of God. As those books are open, they're going to say, we need to repent. We are thankful that there is not an accuser around. We want our names written in that book of life. And so we can look forward. As God's people today, we have been given a glimpse of what's going to take place in the future. And I hope we never forget that. I hope we are always grateful and thankful to the fact that God opened up our minds not because we were better than the world, but God is giving us a work to do. He's showing us a way of life in which he wants us to live. And he's in the process of teaching us, us right now. And we better heed that warning. And we better be a part of the work that is taking this message to a world who will reject God now, but in the resurrection, they're going to be very grateful for the work that we have done. They will come to us as God's children born into his family, part of his divine immortal family and be able to be taught and they'll be prepared because they would have been humble through the things that they would have experienced. Here's just one other point that I want to leave with you before we finish right now. This eighth day has another important significance to it as well. I want you to think about this. The eighth day was very important to the people of Israel. Just very quickly, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12, and this is not the only place that it is mentioned, but this is one of the um, major scriptures that God gives us in the Bible. It has to do with the birth of children, and especially in this case, the birth of a boy. I think you probably all know what I'm talking about here, but let's read it in chapter 12 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation of her infirmity shall be unclean. And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, we, we talk about circumcision. It was very important. In New Testament times, Jesus Christ himself was circumcised. The Apostle Paul was. This was very important back then. For us, we find that the instruction God gives in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16 has another aspect to it. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, just let me read it to you here real quickly. He says to the people of Israel, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. 
Yes, God was interested in the physical aspect of circumcision of a, a, a boy child. But more importantly, God was interested in the circumcision of our heart. What does that mean? Well, you're in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. What does it say about Satan? Satan is a deceiver. He is desperately wicked. He has deceived the world. He is wicked. And the one thing God wants to do, when he talks about the circumcision of our heart, he is talking about getting rid of everything that is rotten and evil and perverse and getting it out of our lives completely. And it's interesting that physical circumcision took place on the eighth day. And what is God going to do on the eighth day, at the end of the eighth day? Let's read it here in Revelation chapter 20. Very quickly over in Revelation chapter 20, as all those who have their names written in the book of life on which the second death has no power, who will be given a, re a part in the family of God and be given immortality, those that reject that, what do we find here? In Revelation 20, and down in, let's see, verse um, 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There is a second death for those who do not want to humble themselves, who do not want to repent, who refuse the fact that the books of life are open or the, the, the books are open and a book of life is written and they do not want their names in there. It says, this is the second death in verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. You know, before God the Father brings the new Jerusalem to this earth, this world is going to be circumcised of all things that offend, everything that is contrary to God's way of life, everything that is evil. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, God says. Get rid of iniquity. This world is going to be purified. This world is going to be made a fit place for God the Father to dwell. And as we continue on with God's plan and understand this, no wonder, he says in chapter 21, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Brethren, this is a wonderful day when all mankind is going to have the opportunity, apart from those who already have it in this life, now you and me, and those that during the thousand years will be given that opportunity, but the vast majority of all humanity that has ever lived on this day are going to have the books opened, their blindness is going to be removed, their names will be written in the book of life. They will be given immortality. The world will be circumcised of all evil and deception and Satan and his evil ways. And truly, the great God, the creator God, is going to be able to dwell with his creation. What a wonderful time. Let's never forget it. Let's always remember God's great plan that he has, not just for us, but his entire creation. What a wonderful plan it is. What a wonderful, great last day this day really is.